Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. You're back. I'm back. Thank you for coming back or for uh, trying it out for the first time. Like anal. I uh, appreciate you listening. Glad you're here. Hope you're doing well. Uh, are you doing well? It's a good thing to ask yourself, right? I mean, I'm asking you, but I'm not there and most likely you don't really know me. So my asking you is like you asking yourself, hmm? Are you doing okay? Are the people around you doing okay? That's an important distinction. Sometimes you feel good, but you're making everyone else miserable or vice versa. I hope you're doing well and uh, I appreciate you being here. Um, I'm excited about today's uh, episode. I had a great conversation that I hope you enjoy. And um, everyone keeps uh, asking for a list of all the books that are mentioned. I should uh, start that or put that somewhere. Maybe I'll post it on Instagram, but um, some of them I'll just uh, tell you about right now or recall. Um, one that Shafi Hossein and I were talking about is A Guide to the Good Life by William Irvine. And that's all about stoicism, which we talked about a bunch in that episode, A Guide to the Good Life by William Irvine. And um, here's a book I haven't really mentioned on the podcast that I forgot about that I love. Well, not that I forgot about it, it just hasn't been um, in the front of my mind. But uh, The Compassionate Life by a guy named Mark Ian Barash, B-I-A-R-A-S-C-H. It's called The Compassionate Life, Walking the Path of Kindness. And um, that's a book I read a long time ago. And uh, I pulled a quote from there that you'll hear in a moment, but uh, it's one of my favorite books. I found it in a used bookstore in um, Austin or in a bookstore. I bought a used copy of it, I think. I think it was in Austin. Maybe it was somewhere else, but I bought it used and uh, it's great. It's got a little sneaker with a flower coming out of it on the front cover, but it's a terrific book and uh, I highly recommend that book. And um, a book I've mentioned a bunch on here is um, The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. That's one of my favorite books. Um, uh, the Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts. It's another book I've mentioned on here that I love. That was like one of the first books that got me into uh, all the Buddhism stuff. It's terrific. Currently, I'm reading The Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. And, um, oh, what's the, uh, Jack Cornfield one also has wisdom in the title. God, I can't think of it. It's like changed my life. That goddamn book. Oh, why can't I think of it? I'm confusing it with the compassionate life because both are, um, similar. The wise heart. Ooh, so glad I thought of that. The wise heart by Jack Cornfield. Um, is one of my favorite books ever. So um, those will all help you. And then any Thich Nhat Hanh book, of course, Happiness, Peace of Mind. There's a lot. They're all pretty similar. And may I also recommend a book that admittedly I have not read, but uh, I plan to. Uh, it's a book by today's guest, Adam Caton Holland, called um, Tragedy Plus Time. You can get that. And um, my friend uh, Adam Caton Holland, who's uh, today's guest, he wrote that book, and um, it's a book I want to read and have been wanting to read and just have not got around to do it yet, um, but I will, and I think you'll be very interested in it after hearing uh, this episode. Adam is a, a comic who lives in Denver, and um, 
He's fantastic. He has an album coming out, a new album coming out August 3rd, um, which I was supposed to um, bank this episode and then release it uh, after the album had been out. Um, but scheduling didn't allow me to do that, so I kind of screwed up. So um, I'm just asking you and tasking you with remembering that his album is coming out on August 3rd. It's called Semblance of Normalcy. Monday, August 3rd, it'll be out. And uh, he's got a couple other albums, too, that are great. You can go check them out. Um, they're all available, streaming. One's called I Don't Know If I'm Happy, and um, and uh, another one's called Performs His Signature Bits. And uh, they're all on Apple Music and stuff. Adam's a great comic. Really, really funny. And um, we actually don't know each other that well. We, we spent a little time together when I was in Denver. Um, doing shows with Ari, big group hang. And then we spent some time together in Dublin. We were both at the Dublin Comedy Festival together. And uh, I'm an admirer of his work. And um, I really like him. I like seeing him. And uh, I was happy to have him on the podcast. It's a really great conversation. We talk all about uh, our uh, anxieties and, and having a kid and the, the anxiety of having a kid. And um, he's dealt with some tragedy in his life, which he was... Um, kind enough to talk about. So we talk about a grievance and um, therapy and specific kinds of therapy and uh, PTSD and a bunch of, a bunch of other good stuff. And I think we had some laughs and it was a really nice conversation. And uh, I just screwed up with the scheduling. So instead of saying, go get his album right now, go stream his album right now, I'm going to say, go get it, go stream it on Monday, August 3rd, Semblance of Normalcy by Adam Caton Holland. And uh, check him out on Instagram and Twitter. Very, very funny guy. And uh, he also has a podcast called The Growlix Save Saves the World. Growlix is a G-R-A-W-L-I-X. You've probably heard of them before. They had a TV show for a while. And um, they're great. And he's great. And uh, I'm rambling now. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope that you're doing well. And I hope that you check out some of these books um, because they've been really, really helpful for, for me. And, uh, I've been talking a lot of, lately about the, uh, waking up app by Sam Harris, which I also highly recommend. It's been extremely helpful to me. So I appreciate listening to the show. I appreciate all the, uh, appreciate all the kind words and the reviews are so nice. And, uh, if you want to do that, leave a review. It's very helpful. And as always, the most helpful thing you can do is to tell some, some people about it, tell some friends, tweet it, Instagram it and say, Hey, this podcast is great. Spread the word and uh, spread the love. Be nice to each other, right? I mean, we're only here for a brief time. Might as well be nice. Anyways, here's a nice quote that I enjoyed that I pulled out of this book, The Compassionate Life, which I highly recommend. And uh, it goes a little something like this. If one completes the journey to one's own heart, one will find oneself in the heart of everyone else. Hmm? That's the opening quote to chapter one of The Compassionate Life, Walking the Path of Kindness by Mark Ian Borash. I hope I'm saying his name right. And uh, I hope you're well and I hope you enjoy this conversation with myself and my friend Adam Caton Holland. Bye.
All right, we're live. It's happening. This is it. Man, the pressure, the pressure. Is this all right? We did very little prep. I hope it's all right. I think it's all right. We're both pros. We both uh, like each other. Let's I say we just go for it. All right, sweet. We're in. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> yeah, for whatever welcome. whatever you say. Thanks for being had. Yes, uh, always. I see. I'm. We're going to talk about anxiety. I get anxious. Every time I do this podcast and I'm like, what am I doing? This is stupid. I shouldn't do this. It's making me unhappy. Yeah, well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> I, think, I think you're smart uh, to do like the intros later because that alleviates some of the pressure because if you just had to right now spin a killer intro, it'd be, it'd be too much to handle. You'd quit the podcast. It's too much. It's brutal. And here's what happens. It's like the classic thing with everything that we get anxious about is this thing of like, I don't know how we're going to talk for an hour. That's insane. It's going to be a, a crazy. But I was just doing this thing. I have all these tools now with anxiety. Um, but part of it is just like I'm sitting here being like, what are you afraid of? When have you ever done any podcast ever where we just stopped and we're like, okay, we're out of things to say. <laughs> it's over now. That's it. That's it. Normally <laughs> you clock in in an hour or so, but this is going to be an 18-minute cast, and that's a micro episode. Yeah, it's it's never happened. And um, the other thing I'm doing, I don't know. I, I mean, I will, I'd like to get into this, but are you a meditator at all? Have you gotten into meditation at all? Not really. I. But, you know, uh, I'm not trying to shamelessly plug, but my friends and I do a podcast where we try to improve ourselves. And it's like a different challenge every week. Um, and so one of the challenges recently was meditating for a week, just give it a try. And I, yeah. I really enjoyed it, but I, I'm terrible at it. It's, it's no good. Like I, I, had to, I had to Google, how do you meditate? <laughs> like that's how I started doing it. Um, but I, I want to do it more. I did it for seven days in a row and I can see the benefits for sure. Well, I think that's the thing about, um, meditation is you got to first of all i think you understand that like you're not just going to be like great at it and i think there's not even a such thing as great at it right it's just sort of like it's not like uh you know gymnastics yeah well i think that's what i initially i thought you know you got to clear your head and you have to try to not think and then all these stray thoughts would come in and i'd be mad at myself for not even being able to shut my brain off um, but then I learned over the course of the week, that's okay. Just take in those thoughts, let them come in and out. And that's, that's part of the process. Yeah. So that's like basically the process. And that's like the most typical thing. I'm talking like I'm a meditation expert. I'm not, but I think that's the most typical um, reaction is like, I can't manage to shut down these thoughts, but that's not even like a possibility. That's the brain's job is to think thoughts. Right. You know, it reminded me of uh, back in the day, I, I took classes at Second City before I did stand up comedy. I took like an improv class and a sketch writing class. And one of the assignments was like, go do free writing before you even come to class, go sit for an hour and just write every thought that comes into your head. And as a way to sort of get the creative juices flowing. And it reminded me of that because it was very just stream of consciousness get it all out. And I found it helped creatively. Like I, my brain was kind of ready to go create after meditating. Yeah. I find that also that's how Jonagan writes Tommy Jonagan past oh, guest. Really? I think he just sits and like free writes like that and he'll fill a notebook and then go back through and see if there's anything 
in there. I'd never tried it for comedy. You know, I just sort of tried it as an exercise to be like, okay, and now time to go to writing class. But uh, yeah, I guess there might be some gold in there. Who knows? Well, the hard thing is your thought, your brain moves faster than your hand. That's what I have. Like when I'm writing like stand up, my thoughts are, that's why my writing looks like shit. Cause I'm starting to be like, and then this and then this, and my hand can't yeah, it's just uh, like scratch. Yeah. It just looks like shit. We should hire uh typists. Like we're old authors. <laughs> fill our thoughts out walking around a room. Well, you know what happened? You'd hire the guy or the woman and uh, whoever it is. And then you'd just, as soon as I hired the person, I'd just be like, uh, I got nothing. I'm sorry. Sorry you're here. I don't have anything. What do you think? You think this is funny? And you're like, listen, I'm, I'm not here to chime in. You just do your thing. Um, but now where I'm going with uh, what I'm like getting into with um, meditation or mindfulness and stuff is the idea of just um, when anxious, just sit and feel what it feels like to be anxious and just to be mindful physically feel what anxiety feels like and that really helps because instead of us identifying with the anxious thoughts you're just feeling it as an experience of like this is something i'm experiencing now in my consciousness of like maybe my my leg is twitching or my heart is beating faster and when you break it down into those parts of just this little physical thing it takes some of the teeth out of it instead of being like, Oh my God, I'm dying. I'm panicking. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of be like, Ah, oh, I have a weird tingling in my arm and my heart's beating faster than it was earlier. So it's kind of a know your enemy approach, like really just feel every part of this experience. And it's not as scary because you can sort of, you know, it's not, didn't kill you. Yeah, exactly. I'm just kind of like, yeah, it's just a weird feeling. I just don't feel great. That's not, such a big deal, you know? Can I ask um, how you how you meditate literally physically? Like, do you lie down? Do you go to a dark space? Do you just sit right here where you're sitting in your ch- podcast chair? Like, what's your style? So I got a chair that nobody sits in. It's just facing the wrong direction for some reason. It's not facing the TV. And a um, wall type of thing? Like, yeah, well, it's not like a wall, but it's like, it's over here. Like, we have... If we have people over, it's nice because it looks, it feels like a circle, but it's just kind of facing the couch that I'm sitting in. Got it. And so I just kind of, I'll sit upright. I can't sit on the floor. That's insane to me when people put their ankles on their knee and shit. Yeah, yeah. So I just sit upright with feet on the floor. And I've been doing lately, I keep recommending it. Highly recommend uh, Sam Harris. You know that guy? No. He's terrific. He's got an app called Waking Up. It's the Waking Up app with Sam Harris. And it's got like a ton of shit on there. And he makes it free for anybody. He's, it costs money, but he's like, if you can't afford it, I don't want that to be the reason, yada, yada. So he's like, you can email us, no questions asked, we'll supply it. Um, I paid for it, just full disclosure. I'm not a... Good, good dude. Yeah, I care about uh, society, but um, I don't know how that made sense. But anyways, I got the... Um, the app and the app has like a ton of stuff on there. He has like hours and hours of theory where he's just talking to meditation teachers and stuff. And then there's all kinds of different, but he has like an introductory course and it's 50, yeah. 50, um, like 10 minute things. And for a while I was skipping that cause that's my ego is like, ah, I've been meditating for years. I don't need this guy's bullshit introduction. And then I just recently start, or like three weeks ago started doing that. And it's like really, really great. It's been the most helpful huh. that I've done. So it's like 10 or 15 minutes at a time, just guided. I, that's what I, on the day seven, 
I tried a guided one. Uh, my wife does Peloton and we have like, all, they do, they have guided ones. So I was like, I'll just try one. And I thought, honestly, as soon as you put on new agey music, I'm like already into it. I'm just like, okay, I'm half asleep and feeling pretty chill. Uh, so I think guided might be good for me. I think I could get, get down with that. No, well, the guided is great. I use the Calm app too, which is also good. But the guided is great because they t- they're so good at timing it where like, I'm trying to meditate and like naturally all of a sudden I'm just thinking about a conversation I had three weeks ago, or I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat afterwards and like just the right time. He'll be like, okay. And your thoughts have taken over and you're no longer uh, whatever. And you're like, how the fuck? And he's like, that's okay. Just come back and let the thoughts disappear. Yada, yada. So it's pretty great. And they always say, they manage to say exactly what, is happening to you and which allows you to be like, Oh, I'm not crazy. or losing my mind. I'm having the typical experience with meditation. Yeah. I think a kind, but stern guide could go a long way. Yeah. It's pretty great. And now we're getting into these like in-depth uh, concepts of like everything is just happening in consciousness. Like the idea of no self and non-duality, like the idea of like, I, have a body and I have a mind. Well, then you're like, if you're not your body and you're not your mind, then who are you? And we're getting into these like trippy things. Yeah. I love, well, that's, you know, because we were doing meditation for our podcast, I was kind of after meditating, I would write down my thoughts and they would go very, I was, I was self-effacing because we're comics, but they were very like early stoner thoughts about the interconnectedness of all of us and like the meaningless of self. I was, I was getting there already, but they just, when you repeat them, they sound like, philosophy 101 bullshit that you kind of can't help but feel uh self-conscious about it 100 percent. like i I was just i'm getting way into this stuff and consciousness and ego and all this stuff and i went to the beach last week with ari shafir and we were like in the water and i was trying to like explain what sam harris who's like a neurological neuroscientist. I'm not smart. Uh, He's a neuroscientist and a meditation teacher. And I'm trying to like convey what he's saying. And Ari's literally just like, what? (laughs) And Ari's like such a a good guy and a thoughtful guy that he's like really trying. I can see him trying. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just like, I want to kill myself because I'm like, uh, just the waves are us and we are. And he's like, ah, I got nothing here. <laughs> yeah. Like existential telephone gets real bad, real fast. <laughs> it does. Now, are you, are you a mushroom guy or a weed guy or any of that stuff? Uh, not much anymore. I used to love mushrooms um, and had some really great groundbreaking experiences on them, but I haven't done it in a while. Um, I mean, I don't want to be too downer, but I, I lost my sister like eight years ago and it was a really fucked up story. And, uh, my brain, I don't really trust my brain to go. uh, I don't let it off the leash too much anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I feel that way without the tragedy. So I get it. I've, I've always thought that way with my anxiety and panic of like when I, I mean, I'm, I'm sober now from drugs and alcohol, but like even when I was drink and drugs, I just smoked pot here and there or whatever. And I would, sure, sure. I liked painkillers when I had them, but I never had a painkiller guy, um, which was good. That is good. But um, even Massachusetts. Yeah. 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 We love painkillers. <laughs> yeah. It's the state bird. Um, but 
even then I was like, I'm like the idea of like, I had so much anxiety and panic that I'm like the idea of like being outside of my mind. Right. I'm just like, I better not do that. That was my concern too. Cause like, I really liked shrooms. I wasn't doing, I wouldn't do them all the time, but I definitely would have a soul searching trips and you kind of, it's just like a deep think. And then you, you kind of get, you're fascinated and in awe of the world again. You're like, this tree is beautiful in a way that I haven't realized since I was four years old. And that's just a nice, healthy kind of flushing of the brain. I enjoyed that. But yeah, now I don't know. I don't trust it as much anymore. Yeah, I like that idea of that, of the idea of mushrooms and like the Bill Hicks documentary. They really like talk about his experiences with that. And I've talked Mike Kaplan's a good friend of mine and he's like mm-hmm. a Buddhist and he loves mushroom. And the way he describes them, like that sounds amazing. But I've also heard and understand that you can get there without the mushrooms through meditation, which I feel like I've had like glimpses of with this Sam Harris stuff. So I'm trying to take that route, which it seems like a much longer route to get there. Yeah, but a much healthier, like deeper one, I think, if you can kind of tap into it. I mean, I remember one of the first times I ever did hot yoga. This sounds so cheesy, but towards the end of the class, we're like doing, I think it's called Shavasana, whatever you just lay on your back yeah. at the end. And I think that's honestly just like a five minute meditation is what it is. Yeah. And I remember vividly just floating above my body and like looking at the class from up above. And then they pulled me out of it and I was like, holy shit, if I can tap into that every time I will be here every day, core power. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like there's moments like that meditatively. And I've noticed, I think, I don't know if it's my brain or my conscious or subconscious that like snaps me out of it. Cause I start being like, Whoa, bro. Totally, and, totally. and then you're like, Hey, Hey, come on, man. What are you doing? Well, Get that's like the Shaolin monks are like, Holy shit, this is cool. They're just like, lean in, calm down, lean in and off you go. But we're not, we're not there, my friend. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get there little by little. That's um, a noble struggle. I, like I said, I, whenever I commit to this stuff, I can see the value and I tap in, but then I was like, nah, all right, on to the next thing. Like I don't put it into daily practice. Yeah. It's, well, it's hard to, I don't know what the science is, but there is, it's so hard to consistently do things that are really good for us. It feels yeah. like eating well, exercise, writing, all that shit. I don't know what that is. Do you have that struggle as well? I am pretty neurotic and like OCD was bad growing up. And so a way that's always chilled me out is, is just exercising and like that. So if I don't do, if I don't exercise every single day, uh, not even just for aesthetic vanity, just to sort of purge that anxiety, I definitely get wound up. I feel worse on days that I don't exercise. So I try to do something every day. Um, so I guess that would be my most healthy, uh, reoccurring practice for sure. Yes. Yeah, see, I'm like better when I exercise and I still manage to not do it. Although I've been running a bunch again, I used to be a big distance runner, but now I'm like getting old and it hurts more. How far, <laughs> I mean, distance running, I used to play soccer and like, I remember the longest I've ever run was about 13 miles. And I was off, I was on an island off of Virginia. It was very rural. I ran at night. And it was that was one of the most zen experiences I've ever had in my life. I was just kind of in the middle of nowhere, just running, and everything shut off in the way I think you desire when you're going for this higher level that you're trying through meditation or whatever. It all just shut off and I was just 
zoned out for an hour and then I would snap too. And I was like, holy shit, that was six miles, seven miles. Like you had no idea. Yeah. You can get that with running. I mean, now I'm running every other day. Like I run like a 5k 3.1 miles and uh, I do it every other day because I'm like, I just get sore. My feet hurt, my knee hurts. Yeah, and I just totally. started I just started doing um, MMA again, which I took four months off because of COVID and I probably sh still should be taking it off, but we wear masks and put. Yeah. My buddy Ben Roy is like a jujitsu instructor and, and he's back in, but like one-on-one -on -one and they test and everything, but I'm still like, I don't know, man, you're in, you're in there pretty tight, pretty tight with those guys. Yeah. Same. It's like ridiculous. It's kind of a thing where we're just like, all right, so we're just, pretty much trusting we're both okay here um but it, it it feels good but it is a different kind of soreness and like kicking a heavy bag and getting punched in the face and then running the next day it is a combo of like what am i doing here what is the benefit what is the you know uh the risk um right yeah it's that it's a lot more carefree when your joints are 23 years old but I yeah. just, I just hit 40. And so I go three miles running and I'm like, yeah, that's, I'm going to feel that for two days straight. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'm 38 now. And I feel like this is how I'm thinking from what I understand the way it goes is like now before in my twenties, I would just, I ran all day, eight, nine miles a day and just was fine untouched. And now I'm like, I start, I wake up in the morning and I'm sore and stiff. And when I start running, I, I loosen up. And by the time I'm a mile in, I feel pretty good. And then later at night, I'm like, oh, I got a couple of cricks. But I think you get to an age where you don't warm up. You get worse as you continue to run. Well, I have to do all my exercise at least a couple hours into the day. Because I wake up, I get out of bed, and it's like old man winter. It's just popping <laughs> ankles and knees. And like, there's no way. I'm like, cool, let's run right now at 6 a.m. My body has to like limber up, and then I can go do it. I really resent my friend Ben and my other friend Andrew, who are like my two comedy buddies, my best comedy buddies, because they were just nerdy kids. Ben played in like punk bands, but they never did any athletics. Meanwhile, I did sports from like five years old to 20, pretty hard, and my body is shot. And they're having these like 40-year-old athletic renaissances where they're like, wow, I can really move this thing around. I can do jujitsu. I can run for 20 miles. I'm like, fuck you guys. My knees are shot. Well, it catches up eventually, I guess. And that's the thing that's funny because in your mind, you're like, I'm going to eat well and stretch and meditate and run and do all this. And you're still like, you can last longer or whatever, maybe, but ultimately time will catch up. It's like the ultimate equalizer. There's nothing you can do uh, to keep from aging. No, really not. I think, I think honestly, if stretching, if we were to all wake up and stretch for 15 minutes, they'd be like, you could extend your life eight years if you just stretched every morning. But we're all like, ah, forget it. it I'm, dude, I still feel that way. It's like another thing that is good for me. I finished running though, and I'm like, ah, I stretch a little bit. I kind of fake it. I go through the motions, yeah, and then I'm just yeah, like, yeah. that was good enough. That's fine. I always um, tell myself, count to 10 on each stretch, and then it's like five seconds. I was like, that's funny. That's, that's yeah. good. On to the next leg. By the way, unrelated, um, Ben Roy uh, did a guest spot. Last time I was at the War Comedy Works okay. in Denver, he did like a spot right before I went on and murdered so hard that I was like, this is, this is an issue. This is a problem right now. I, I mean, do, I do so killed. much with him and I, I hate following that dude. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's an impossible. He smashed so hard. And then the only thing that saved me was he did a bit about how 
people from Boston suck because I think yeah. he's from there originally. He's from and then, He's a New England kid. Yeah, so then I went up after, and the, was the only thing that saved me was I went, uh, hey, I'm, I'm from Boston, and it killed so hard that because he had just trashed Boston so hard that it, uh, it was enough for them to be like, okay, okay, but it definitely, the level came down. Oh, yeah, same with me. My energy compared to Ben's. And also, he's like, a, he's a showman. He's a frontman of a band, so... If he's headlining, he'll be down in the audience, like in people's faces, touching their heads and crap. And then I go up there and I'm like, pretty state, uh, going to be about the face. <laughs> I really worked on the jokes. I hope you like them. And like, <laughs> off we go. That's like one of the best pieces of comedy advice I ever got was because when you're young, your instinct is to keep the energy at that. It's sort of metaphorical, I guess, for life, but like to keep the energy to do what the person before you did. Right. And um, Tony V, who's a comic in Boston, was the guy that was like, you got to take it all the way back down to zero. He's like, come out, don't even say anything for a little bit. Just kind of be up there going, hi. And like bring them down to, to flat, to level, and then you can take them to wherever you want to go. It's such good advice. I learned it somewhere along the way. I don't, ha I don't have an aha moment I can recall, but it must have been just eating shit, trying to follow Ben's energy 15 times and finally being like, this isn't working. Do your thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a great metaphor for like people doing something. You're like, all right, that, that seems to work. I'll do what that guy is doing. And then you're like, oh, I'm a completely different person. Oh, dude. And I remember, I mean, you're so desperate when you're a younger comic. Like, I don't know if you know Ben Kronberg, he's from Denver and yeah, he was the kind of first one of us to go anywhere and get on TV and stuff. And he would do musical. He had a guitar and he'd play like Nick Thune kind of one-liner things. And so like, I just tried that. I had like a two month period where I fucking tried to be a guitar act. Like, what are you doing? That's so far from what I do, but you just kind of desperately want to succeed. Yeah. Well, I think also when you're young, everything you see, you're like, maybe I could do that. Maybe I, I like that. That seems like something. Right. Right. I, I mean, I was doing like a poem. I, when I first started, I had, there was George Carlin had like a poem about his hair from like 1971. And then I wrote a poem about the word fuck. And I was like, fuck is a word often heard, often slurred. <laughs> it was like a pure Carlin. And yeah, it was about yeah, yeah. the word fuck. And I thought, I, I remember, I, I mean, I was like 17, but I remember being like, this is good. Like, this is a big, <laughs> this is big. I used to, Eugene Merman used to put me on his show a lot. And then I'd come back from that with like, now I read emails. That's my thing. And like, I just <laughs> have very absurd, you know, literary premises and shit. It's fun. I mean, that to me is, I've talked about this in this podcast too. That's to me, there's the best part of aging is sort of slowly finding out as a comic, but also as a person is like figuring out who you are, what works for you, what you like. And that to me is like the best part of being in my old upper thirties or old, what do you call it? Late thirties. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your autumn years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's all over. <laughs> no, I agree. And just in life as well, I think, there's a lot of anxiety of, you know, just wanting to fit in, doing the things that are cool. And at some point, you just don't care about cool anymore. Like I have a, a son now, I'm like a one-year-old kid. And that's really quickly, you just kind of embrace dad and your ego gets tossed away real quick. And I love that fact, because I think we spend a lot of time worrying about that. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that because just today, Sarah, my wife, and I, I'm 30. So you must have been 39-ish when you had your kid? Uh, let's see. Eight, I had just turned 38 when I had him. Oh, okay. So I'm okay. 38. Yeah. My wife is older. She's 42. 
And we were at a barbecue yesterday and uh, Rachel Feinstein, wonderful comic, was there with her new baby. And um, we were like, ah, maybe we'll have a baby. And you're like, we're having that conversation. But like, we've kind of been like, ah, it's too late. And we're both comics and we don't have the money. But then you yeah. start to be like, that would be fun and exciting. And then how, how much, how resistant were you to it? How much anxiety did you have? How much stress did you have towards it? Was it, or natural? I, you wasn't, just resist- to- I wasn't resistant at all. Um, because I, like we tried, I, I'm one of the few people I know. I was like, we tried to have a baby and then we had a baby. It wasn't like a mistake. It was sort of like, let's do it. We're ready. And, um, I'm fortunate. Like I was able to buy a house and it's like, okay, let's do it. Let's be in this house and have a baby. Um, but I also don't have a wife who's a comic as well. My wife is very old school. And, you know, from the first day I met her, she was like, I just want to be a mom. Like, that's my career goal is to be a mom. And I, at first I was like, kind of like, what? That's stupid. You got to have more goals than that. And she's like, no, but she just wants to always wanted to do that. And that's so freeing on my end. And she's very been, been very cool with like, you go conquer the world. I'll, I got the home front taken care of. So that allowed me to like, not have the comedy fear of like, oh, my career is going to be ruined. I got to, so I, so that freed me up big time because unfortunately career and comedy is a lot of my thought. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the thing we've kind of thought of too, is that like, if we were to have a kid is like, I make more money because I'm a man. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, wins. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, like I've been more fortunate in my career to make more money at this point. And like the, where I make most of my money or used to is on the road. Cause I'm, right. on the, I'm like a road guy, like, you know, yeah, 40 weeks a year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, to not be on the road, like someone would have to have the baby at home, which would be her. And it's like one of those things of like, you know, you might have to take huge sacrifices in your comedy career. And then I couldn't because I would need to make money. And then it's like more money now. Like you would, it'd be more urgent. Yeah, exactly. So then it's like, then I'm away from the kid and then we live in New York, which is so expensive. And then it's like public school and all I, I go, did you go down that hole at all? Or again, I guess you didn't have to worry about any of that stuff too, or not any of that. stuff. I mean, I went down the hole of like, is, is this going to a take away so much money and so much of my time that I can't just be like, you know, I still live in the world. I had a TV show. So I'm like, what if I get another TV show and it needs to shoot for six months here? Do I just pack the family up? Do I go, you know, like I was going to go, God, it's so sad. I was going to go to Edinburgh this year for the whole month. And, uh, and even now that's an issue. It's like, we worked it out. They were going to come for two weeks in the middle, but you know, it, it affects every single decision. So I didn't realize that as much. And I don't think I played out the scenarios prior to having a baby. But now that I have a kid, it's like, there's no, I, I wouldn't care. I'd throw that shit all away real, real fast. Yeah. Well, it seems like that's the thing too, is like, um, and I guess this can apply to a lot of different anxieties, but like the playing it out doesn't, is good. It's good to be uh, aware and plan, but also it's like, you can't play out every situation in life. Some things you just have to decide and be like, we'll be fine when we get to that. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Yeah. And also, and truly like, so this is an interesting story. We, we got pregnant and then maybe halfway through, um, like maybe 24 weeks, Katie went in for like a routine checkup and they were like, Oh, this baby's coming like now. 
and we were like, what? And, and there had been some dilation and, and I, I don't want to get too into details, but it was like, holy shit. And they sent us to like the neonatal unit and we were there for three days. And long story short, they said a measurement that she had of like cervical length was ind- indicative of the baby coming any second. And it scared the shit out of us because that would have been very, very premature. And the next half of the pregnancy was kind of like my wife on bed rest and just every day being like, that's one more day of development and bacon in the oven. Good job, babe. And we held on to full term by one day and the kid came out with no problems at all. But the back half of the pregnancy was so harrowing and anxiety inducing that the baby was born healthy and it's like, oh, I don't care about anything else anymore. Like all the, all the sort of vague comedy concerns and shit were out the window. It was, it's amazing how real life takes over in a heartbeat and you're like, okay, I don't have time for uh, my, my vain fake anxieties. There's a lot of real ones right now. Yeah. Part of me has that feeling is like, oh, I might be l- much less anxious if I had a kid because it makes everything, that, like you said, like the things that really matter more evident. And like I have nieces and nephews and I'll spend time with them. And um, two of them are like older now, but like the, the little, little ones, it bring, nothing brings me more in the moment than hanging out with a small child, a, a ba- like a three-year-old, a four-year-old, like the idea of like making them laugh and being connected to um, listening to them and talking to them really brings you into the moment. And it's hard to be thinking about retweets when <laughs> you're talking to a, a small child, you know? Yeah, I think that's what we're kind of, I mean, that's, you know, more than I, but I feel like the in the moment, the state of unthinking is the, is what all of this stuff is searching for meditation and enlightenment and all of that is, is the in the moment, unthinking surrendering of self and, kids do that all the time for you in a way that you don't even realize. But next thing you know, you're just like, Oh, I've, I haven't thought about one comedy thing in an hour. I've just been playing trucks with my little dude. Right. Yeah. That sounds glorious to me, but and I, this to me, it sounds crazy. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to not have kids and it's hard to like, yeah, yes, yes. I don't, I don't want to convince you not to have kids when you already have a kid, but to me, I'm hearing you out <laughs> to me, the biggest deterrent. And it sounds funny, but I'm also like kind of serious from talking to my friend with kids is having to spend time with the parents of your kids, friends. Fuck dude. Hold. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of had a bit before life stopped when I was limping towards useful about there's no more of a, like no, nobody gives less of a fuck than a dad of a one-year-old at another one-year-old's birthday party. Like I wouldn't even, I'll wear sweatpants. I'll drink at 11 AM. I won't even make small talk. Like I was at some party and someone mentioned Adam was a comic and I just like grunted. I was like, I don't like you people. This is all circumstantial. I won't see you again ever. I bet we don't make, Birthday party number two for this kid. So no way. I'm not trying at all. <laughs> yeah, my buddy, uh, he's that I went to high school with. He's like my best friend. And he's like, he's like a kind of a relatively conservative guy, not politically, but just like, he's just a conservative fella and uh, like a small town Massachusetts guy. And he, he's a merchant Marine. So he lives in Seattle and he's got little kids and he's in like a very hipster neighborhood. And, you know, he's wearing his Carhartt and dad <laughs> right. jeans. And, uh, you know, he's got, he's going to a, whatever a f- the group picnic and it's, you know, fellas in skinny jeans and fedoras talking about, 
whatever thing. And he's like, I, I don't know what the fuck these people are even talking about. You yeah, know, I remember I saw a guy in a Wilco t-shirt and I was like, that's, that's cool enough. <laughs> like, I'll go over, I'll talk to Wilco for the next 20 minutes. Yeah, that's something you got. I guess you got to make the best of it. But your friends, your kids aren't making friends based on the kid, other kids' parents, you know? No, not at all. And and I see it more with my sister who has three kids who are older. Our kids, one and a half, and we're kind of in quarantine. So, you know, we're not like going out seeking play dates these days. Uh, he's still at the age where he's pretty cool with just mom and dad. Right, so, right. But it was going pretty hard and heavy already with birthday parties and shit with a one-year-old before before everything kind of shut down. Right. And how are you guys handling uh, the whole thing with the one-year-old? No real breaks, right? No, no, <laughs> no breaks at all. None whatsoever. I, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but that's like been the silver lining because I was, I'd be on the road and, it, you know, I, I average about two weekends a month, which is doable. Sometimes right. three, sometimes four. Uh, and I would be missing a lot of shit, but instead it's like, I haven't missed a, a good night at nap time in 90 days. Like I'm there for every single one. So the kids pretty, we're pretty bonded. Right. That's great. So you're loving it. I should have a kid am, is what you're saying. I am loving it. I'm yeah. And now's the time you're going to hunker down and nest anyway. You So just do it, do it right now. And, this moment. Uh, and you'll be like, you'll be doing society a favor by not going out and just being with your kid. I'm like, Sarah, <laughs> get over here. Let's get that IUD out of you. Podcast over. Another one of those short episodes. Yeah, and then we're just banging. Surprise ending. <laughs> no, it's like, it's, well, the, the weird thing, like the, the deeper thing too for me, and this is like more like serious issue, is that I realize that like, and I'm afraid my family's going to listen, but like in my family, everybody that has a kid, the marriage ends up getting very stressed and very tense. And I, you talk to people and they're like, ah, having a kid, it's a lot of work. It's this. And with kids, we don't even get to, and there's a lot of sort of projection towards me of like, well, you get to go to Europe, you're on the road with these families. Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't understand that I'm, I'm working. That's my job that I gambled any kind of job security whatsoever to be this is my own bitterness coming out but oh well dude the anxiety that you've that we've both had over the past 15 years on this long shot of a career can definitely uh, makes up for the perceived freedom we have in what we do exactly i mean like i just went on the rant on my other podcast uh about this where i was just i've been i was talking understanding the humor behind it being like this is the best thing that ever happened to me i'm having a great time and people are like, I'm glad you're having fun. I lost my job. And I'm like, right, 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 right. Yeah, I also lost my job. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm making light of the fact, it's obviously not the best thing that's ever happened to me. Right, of course. Um, and you're like, people are like, well, I got this job now. And I'm like, yeah, well, okay. Well, when you were working for 15 years, I had four roommates and my electricity was shut off. It's like, okay, I'm like, this is a difficult road to get to this point where I have some money. And still well, not a rich person. Right. And that pot is going away fast as we don't tour. And the public gathering biz is very up in the air. Like it's not, it's not a real happy time for us. I'm trying to bang out scripts and shit, but those are even longer shots. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, well, we have our Patreon. And I'm like, I got sound exchange money here and there. Yeah, okay. Like, right. so it's like, yeah, I'm trying to piece together a living for me and my wife. Um, but anyways, my point was that like, my family 
being around a lot, like I have a big family and a lot of them, like when they had kids, the marriage got tougher and money got tighter and they got to do less things. And so for me, in a lot of ways, the way I've grown up is perceiving it as like, oh, you don't have kids. Shit gets, life gets shitty when you have kids. Right, right. Which is, then you talk to people, I talk to people outside of my family, you're like, it's the most glorious thing I've ever experienced in my life. Nothing else matters. Everything else is a joke compared to raising a kid. But well, I never really heard that much growing up. For sure. I understand what you're saying because it is the death of your freedom. And like the cool thing, like I used to have, you know, Southwest, that's my airline. And I was such a baller. I had companion status on that shit. Nice. So you could just hit plus one and you got a free ticket on any flight. And so prior to the kid, I'd bring my wife on like every road trip if, if, she, if she was up for it or as a city she wanted to go to. And it was so much more fun to tour around the country with my wife and I'd go work at night and then we'd go get up and tour the city. It was a blast. And that's just gone. And so like that was, we really enjoyed traveling together. It was a nice part of our relationship. That's no longer a thing. Right. But you just sort of, you get the benefits elsewhere of this, of this cool little dude you both are head over heels for. And in terms yeah. of like enlightenment and, and the surrendering of self we were talking about, I don't believe that this is absolutely necessary, but I do think there's an interesting thing that happens when you stop thinking about yourself as number one for the first time ever. I think we, you pretend that your wife, you put her before you, but ultimately it's like you're still in your head. But 100% sincerely, this kid is, I think about him before me. And right. it's kind of biological and evolutionary. And, and I think that's almost like a new way of thinking. I've had 40 years on the planet of thinking this way and got that all figured out. And now all of a sudden I'm thinking a different way fundamentally. And that's sort of scary and exciting and probably going to lead to all sorts of growth and thought and all that shit. Yeah. See, that sounds wonderful and magical, but you got to hang out with those other assholes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't get to try any of these new restaurants anymore. Right. No, it does. I mean, it really does um, sound uh, appealing. And I wish that um, I had grown up hearing more of, of that. And then there's also a fear of like, what if my kid gets bullied and I have to go, you know, murder a bunch of people. And, or what if my kid has this developmental disability or, or this happens or, you know, every time they, my kid almost breaks his neck walking down the stairs every day. And you're like, Oh Jesus, you just got to let them fall a little bit. So there's a whole new set of anxieties that are through the roof. Yeah, which is all that is, is just anxiety. Like that's what my therapist would say, which is he says in such a great way of like, it's just anxiety. And you're like, right, shit. I thought I, I, I are you a therapy guy? Uh, yes, I've done, I've done plenty of therapy and pretty intense therapy um, with regard to my sister and all that. I've, I've gone through some serious shit uh, therapy. So yes, I'm a big proponent of, of many different types of therapy. Yeah, my, my therapist is always good. I always think I'm like, I'm going to really trick him here. This is going to be, I'm going to hit him with this. And he's going to be like, I don't even know what to. And then he'll just be like, yeah, it's anxiety. What, uh, what else? And you're like, shit. All right. Fuck, I, thought I, I thought I really had something interesting here. Are you um, like a weekly therapy with your guy? Or? Yeah. So I went during COVID times. I went to every other week. Um, for, Zoom and all that? Yeah. We just do it over the phone. But yeah, his... Yeah. He just lost his son like a couple of weeks ago, which was uh, 
So he hasn't been uh, working. Yeah, it's rough. Um, yeah. So he hasn't been working. But um, yeah, I've been going for years. I love it. But so can we can we talk about your sister a little bit? Yeah, man. Is I'm, that all right? I have an open book on that for sure. You wrote a book about it, right? I did. Yeah, I did. I wrote a book called Tragedy Plus Time. Um, I mean, long story short, she killed herself eight years ago. And she was like my best friend and just a very, very funny, you know, funny girl. And we were comedy collaborators from, you know, four years old on. Um, just my my partner in riffing, I guess. And I, I like found her and it's very fucked up scenario and it really fucked me up. Um, and so I went to a lot of therapy to deal with that, which was later diagnosed as like PTSD and, and, uh, all this memory loss stuff. So I, I did this type of therapy called, uh, EMDR. Oh, I've heard about that. Yeah. It's like eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's hard to say. Um, but basically it's for people with PTSD and when you've got these like traumatic memories that are and triggering flashbacks and nightmares and shit, it's kind of dealing with that. And it, it's, um, I can describe it for you. It's, it's very sci-fi sounding, but you hold these two little like pulsers in your hand and they sort of tick tock back and forth, back and forth. And you close your eyes and your eyes instinctually follow that motion kind of mirroring REM, like what we do when we sleep. And then while you're doing that, you just tell the therapist about the traumatic memory again and again and again in like extreme detail. She wants you to t tell you, tell her everything. And um, the goal of that is just kind of like normalizing it and like taking away the, the severity of it. And over time, it's sort of the memory just becomes less barbed through that process uh, but it's really heavy and hard and you have to think of a happy place in your brain when it gets too overwhelming to like retreat back to. And it was a whole ordeal, but it was, it was fascinating from a brain perspective. Yeah. So that's sort of like, I mean, on a much grander scale, like not too dissimilar from what I was talking about earlier, which just like the physically feeling what it, yeah, what anxiety feels like. That's what it, I mean, again, not too like, equate my uh, doing an hour-long podcast anxiety <laughs> with, with what no. you're talking about. But the exercise of like, let me feel it and kind of approach it from a different way neurologically. And, and like living in it and taking away its teeth, I, I believe you said. Like, yeah, I, I, I think that approach is the same. And she had some metaphor, therapists love metaphors for the brain. That, that's their thing. They can't get enough of them. And her metaphor was that the brain was a, a filing cabinet. And the memory of finding my sister had become this errant file and it was like popping up at inappropriate times. So the goal of this was like to file it away in an orderly fashion. And, and it's there for me to pull up when I want to pull it up. Cause that was a weird thing is like, I didn't, I wanted to have the memory still. I was like, I don't want you to erase my brain. Like I, for some reason I want this. It's not, I don't want it going away. And she's like, it's not going away. I'm just going to help you control it. And I was like, all right, well, that sounds fucking great. <laughs> right. And so you, how long did you do that for? How long did, I apologize for the sirens, if you can hear the sirens. I, I can't hear the sirens. It's just a, it'll be a good metaphor for the listener. With the I, headphones. I was thinking that. <laughs> so how, how long after um, her passing did you start that process? And how long did you do it for? It's honestly a blur 
a lot of it. I, but I've had to like re-piece the narrative because of the book. I think, I think I started the therapy maybe six, eight months after her death because shit was just getting really, really bad for me. I, and I kind of spun out in Grand Rapids at Dr. Grin's. That's a good place to spin out. <laughs> I, I, I spun out pretty fucking hard and, and realized like, I'm not right like in the head at all. I need help. I need help. And uh, so, so then, the, then the therapy itself was probably maybe 10, 12 sessions. I can't even remember. Uh, but at some point I just kind of told her, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I've got it. I don't want to do this anymore. And she's like, then you're done. And she's wow. been, she's been there for me ever since. Like that's her specialty. So, so she's kind of busy and an expert, but I'll call her every six months. And I'm like having a rough one. Can I come in? And, and I just go in and, and we just chat. We don't do the EMDR. We just talk about everything. But, um, it also really helped cause I had been going to do traditional therapy right in the wake of this. And none of that was working. And all those therapists were very like pitying of me and, and just really going out of their way to show their empathy. And, you know, like it just bothered me. I, like I didn't want pity. And then this woman, she wasn't tough love, but you'd looked at her caseload and it's like soldiers. And she told me she had like, you know, African children of war and shit, like kids who have, people have been through way worse than I've been through. So her attitude was very like, it's, it's fucking terrible. Let's, let's get after it. Let's get to work, you know? Right. Yeah. See, I'm like, it's interesting to me because I'm one of those people that I always think like, like so many people hear stuff like that stories like yours and, or of, uh, African children or veterans or whatever it is and think like, how do you recover from that? I cannot imagine recovering from that. Um, Sarah and I are watching, I don't know if you've watched it, HBO, I'll be gone in the dark. Yeah, yeah, we are, my wife and I are watching that too. It's fantastic, and they they show like this couple. If you're not watching, it's you should watch. It's fantastic, or unless you're easily, uh, not, I shouldn't say easily, unless you're triggered by yeah, uh, that kind of trauma. Um, but so this guy was breaking into people's houses and and raping the woman and tying up, tying them both up, and all this crazy stuff. And there's that one couple that's really sweet, and I'm like, they stayed together, and they seem like oh, okay. Yeah, that- that poor man. And he's just like, everyone's like, why didn't you do anything? He's like, cause I was tied up with a gun to my head. But like, yeah, I know that couple's so heartbreaking. Yeah. So they're like heartbreaking. And I'm like, how do you recover from that? Um, so it's, it's so fascinating, but we were watching and eventually that guy was, it's a big news story, but that guy was caught and I felt strangely like, okay, I understand like there must be some sort of relief instead of just this mysterious guy that, came in and fucked up your life and disappeared. Now he's, they're caught and you're like, this is his name. This is who he is. Yeah. I can imagine some relief. Is there, I think my question changed in the process of talking about this, but is there a moment for you, a moment or is it just a process of just like, all right, I feel a sense of relief. Not that you're a hundred percent healed or cured or if it's ever like that, but. No, I mean, honestly, no. Like that's what I think a lot of people get wrong about loss that tragic is like they they want to get to this point where it's like and then i was healed or whatever right. and you're like it just doesn't happen it just like it just i'm healed in the term and like it's not this visceral flashbacks nightmares like i'm used to the loss now but the metaphor of like it feels like you lost a limb you're, you're always aware of that like limb being missing um, right and, and so i you know i've talked about it on stage and i just say it's like 
it's like it's all very Russian. It's just like life. Oh, you're just now learning that life is shit. Like life is shit, and it's just kind of an acceptance of that fact. In a, in a, it helps to be a comic and have a dark ass sense of humor anyway. And being like, this is the place where we operate from. It's like, yeah, man, it's terrible. Let's laugh at it. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of that, right? And so the um, the physical part of the, what is it? E S E D E M D R E M D R yeah. Does the the electricity thing like does it hurt or is it just like no? A- it's it's I, it's not electric. It's not electricity. It's just like vibrating things in your hand, like tick tock, and you can just feel them pulsing back and forth, just as a way to help your eyes move back and forth. You're right. tricking your brain into thinking you're asleep while you're awake. Interesting. Yeah, I was. I, I just remember where I heard about it. I was I was listening to Jim Carrey on Mark Marin, and they both said they have done it oh really yeah i don't know what uh they didn't get into detail and i don't know what their um yeah I, trauma I, or whatever it was friends with Marin as well and i i wonder with his current trauma that could it could be a little bit helpful i've also had people because i've become i wrote like an article about it and i've become this sort of big proponent of it and i've had people come up to me and say i tried emdr and it was the worst thing ever because you're just like reliving your trauma again and again and again but like anything it's like the quality of the shrink. I'm like, I'm sorry that didn't work for you. My lady was awesome. You know, maybe try it again with somebody else, but it's also unique to people. It worked, it worked really well for me because I think I was looking for it pretty hard. Yes. Sometimes that helps if you're in a a state of desperation, it feels like, and you're like, whatever you tell me, I'm going to, I'll do, I'm I'm ready to have that uh, work for me. And it helped um, with the, the PTSD part, it, it, but just, you know, the emotional sense of loss is always there. My dog's whining, hey, no. Um, but you get over it a little bit, it gets a little bit better through time. And my little sister was so fucking funny and such a big fan of comedy and my comedy and that I just know she wouldn't want me moping my way through the rest of my life. So I think it's kind of like, to be very reductive, it's like, would you rather laugh or would you rather cry? Like, I, I've done both a lot. I really prefer laughing. I'm going to try as hard as I can to do that from here on out. Right. God, um, that's tough. And I imagine that, like, comes back in with every, um, what do you call it, um, milestone in your life with the baby, the TV yeah. show, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I run this comedy festival in Denver, and I remember kind of brainstorming it with her before it even started. Now it would have been year eight this year. And she was like, oh man, if that ever gets off the ground, like you should let me drive some of those comics around. I'll volunteer. And that's like, we've come so far past then. Like now people we both loved are my, are my dear friends. And she would be geeking out about a lot of this stuff. Right. And then, so the, the book that you wrote, uh, and I know you want to plug an album as well, but the book I found out about, I don't know if I ever messaged you or if we talked about this, but I didn't know you'd read a book, but I was at that bookstore in downtown Denver that I love, and I can't remember the name of it. Oh, the, uh, the Tattered Cover. Yes, yes. Yeah, great, great I, bookstore. Yeah, I love it. And I was sitting, um, in fact, I bought my favorite book all time there, Say Nothing by some Irish guy, I forget his name. I read that Irish. about the, the Troubles. Yeah, it's like I my favorite that. book. I just read um, that in quarantine. It's so good. Yeah, it's fantastic. So yeah. I was sitting there, and uh, bookstores make me... Um, you know, think and all yada, yada, yada. I'm such a dum-dum. I wish I could just really uh, 
<laughs> they make me think. Yeah, um, but um, they make me reflective, whatever. But I was sitting on like a little couch reading and I'll, sometimes I'll read and I'll stop and kind of think about what I was reading, what I just read. And I was just staring. And then I'm like, I think is your f- picture on the cover? Yeah, the picture. It's a picture like a family portrait of me and my two sisters from when we were kids. Yeah, I was sitting there and just kind of staring at it because it was it was facing or faced, whatever the the you know uh, term is. And then I was looking at the name and I was like, Adam. <laughs> and I, got, I just got up and picked it up, and it was like an autographed copy. That's your hometown. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was looking at it. And at the time, I was like, I got I to gotta check this out. I got to read this. And full disclosure, I have not because I was reading this other book. And I always have like three or four books going sure, at a sure. time. Yeah. But it was funny because I was just, you know, kind of like glazed over just staring. That's and then I had realized man. I was looking at your book. Um, I love that. That's the way to buy my book in like the best indie bookstore in Denver, just staring at you. I love that. <laughs> um, so what was that process like? Was that a traumatic process or the opposite was, of traumatic? It was cathartic because i didn't i didn't like write the book because i was like i've got it i figured out my thoughts on this and it's time to put them to page i i wrote the i did a lot of my thinking in the writing uh so i i would be like sometimes i'd just be like sobbing writing which is when you know it's good (laughs) and and but that would be me having that realization in real time so it really helped me a lot to write it um, because I was able to determine my thoughts rather than gather thoughts I had had previously. It was right. very much in real time. Um, so I, I loved it because it helped me deal with a lot of that. And I grew up wanting to be a writer. And, you know, so it's like every morning I'd have my, have my coffee, walk the dogs, and then sit down and write for a couple hours. It felt very uh, genteel. It was a, a nice Hemingway experience. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's how I started quarantine. I was like, I'm going to write a memoir in quarantine. Like, you know, you always have like these big ideas. And I started writing and I, I told this story again on my other podcast, but I was like, I got all these stories and anxiety and alcoholism and herpes and heartbreak. And I started writing all of them. And then I told my agent about it. And then he hooked me up like a literary agent. And I was like, I'll write a proposal or, or a, what do you call it? A summary yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, book proposals what is kind of the norm. Yeah. So I wrote like, I sent her like 28 pages and like, I'm like, this is good, man. And then uh, like a real comic, just the first criticism. She's like, it's good. You're a good writer. It's a little much all at once. You got to kind of figure it out. And just within five seconds, I was like, no, nope, not doing it. Fuck it. <laughs> I was just like, I'll go back to stand up. This is dumb. Yeah. Did you have that process or experience at all with it? Like, did you ever have the feeling of like, I can't do this. Who am I? An ass? What, what am I? Well, the first five years, I started comedy, right? And I got a job working at the Alt Weekly in Denver, right at the same time, like the Village Voice of Denver, Westward. And I was a staff writer for them, like a journalist for five years. So I wrote and I knew how to like have a deadline and get to it. So if I hadn't had that experience, I don't think it would have been a lot more daunting. But when I got to write the book, I was like, I'm going back to what I know. I love writing. I'm good at writing and I, I like doing it. So I got the same shit from my editor about, or my lit agent about the book proposal, but it wasn't my first time being edited really hard. Right, right. So I'm glad that I had that experience because my, I know exactly what you're talking about and our egos are pretty fragile. And I would have been like, fuck you, this is the most important story of my life. You don't know if it's right or not. I would have gone 
to bat for something that didn't need to go to bat because it was better the way he proposed it. Yeah, see, I guess that's a um, benefit is coming from um, a writing experience and uh, a, a place where you've been writing with an editor. I'm like, I might exclusively stand up comedy. So the idea you're your own boss the whole time. And like, no one's really, besides a helpful tag here and there, no one's telling you do it this way or I'm not letting you on stage. Yeah. In comedy, it's either like, that's great. Or that's been done. No one's ever like, that was garbage. You don't, you're not even close, dude. Like, so answering to somebody was just, foreign to me and someday maybe I'll, I'll try to take another crack at it and um, I think you should man I would read your book I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there you should don't be daunted by that first sort of I'm sure meant to be helpful couple of notes no and like I think it was probably too like again with time she was like being really sweet but it was just like you son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell do you know about writing? Yeah, when um, I first started writing for that paper, I was 24 and, you know, thinking I'm Jack Kerouac. And this uh, editor who, who started it was this woman who started the paper in the 70s. She's this badass. She drinks hard, wears cowboy boots. She's like a figure in Denver. And I'd go in with my little 200 word blurb and she'd have changes. And I'd like go in and try to fight her on every change of why it couldn't be changed. And I remember at one point she was just, she just looked at me and she goes, is this the hill you want to die on? And I was like, fuck. And after that, I kind of learned, let, let the editor do their thing. They're, they're editors for a reason. Yeah, that's helpful. By the way, I'm reading, I just had a friend uh, give me a, you mentioned Kerouac, a first edition Dharma Bums. Dude. And uh, it's pretty killer. That's great. Dharma Bums is for the real Kerouac heads. Like on the road's great, but I, I like Dharma Bums is much better. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I read it. Uh, uh, we got to start to wrap up here, but oh, like, sure, sure. I had this. This is another thing I, I kind of alluded to really about getting older. Is like I'm becoming who I wanted to be. Like in my early twenties, I was like a drunk comic, and like I'm reading Kerouac, man. <laughs> and none of it was getting through. I didn't even like reading. I couldn't focus. So right. like, I kind of like half-ass read Dharma Bums and On the Road, and had no attention span. And I was just a boost. Now I'm like quietly reading and like taking it in. I'm like, this book's amazing. Like I love it. That's great, man. I, no matter when you're getting it, it's good stuff to get. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's super cool because it's a first edition. And um, that's a nice gift. Yeah, it's like three ninety five in the cover. And it's like, here's some other titles. And they're all a dollar ninety five. And it has like a cool smell. And hell yeah, I love that shit. It's a really uh, fun experience. But uh, yeah, I love that book. But um, well, we got to kind of wrap it up. But uh, thanks so much, man. I hope this is enjoyable for you. Oh, yeah, that. dude. Nice talking with you. I, I Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Now, let's plug the uh, the album, which comes out. What day? Uh, August third. August third. New Comedy Central record. Uh, what's it called? Semblance of Normalcy. Nice. Where'd yeah. you record it? I recorded it at Helium in Portland uh, a while back, but it was just, yeah, not too precious with it. It's just like here's a night. I love this night of comedy. Hope you enjoy these jokes, type of thing. I love that. I I like albums. The idea of it just being a show. Here's a show. It's not like this one's recorded here and this was recorded here. We put it all together. I like the idea of like, here's a comedy yeah. show straight through. I literally didn't take any, not even one bit from another show. It's like this, it was this evening's show. Oh, that's perfect. I did that with my Comedy Central record and 
I liked the idea of doing that, but this one we had to because they fucked up the Friday night sound. Ah, so they're like, we only have one show. <laughs> and I was like, great. And okay. it ended up being the best show. Well, lucky um, you. Yeah, but uh, awesome. So, uh, every, and I'll do a proper intro up top and, and, and plug that and the book. But um, um, sweet, man. Oh, you know, if you don't mind plugging, we, our podcast is The Grolic Saves the World. It's me and Ben Roy, we talked about earlier, and Andrew Orbital trying to better the world around us by bettering ourselves. That's great. And you guys are all still working together. No, uh, no, never Crazy, a big right? breakup or anything. You guys just, it works. It's like we're brothers at this point. It's like we hate that we love each other, but we love each other. That's great. I mean, I, it's so hard to uh, maintain anything for that long. Yeah, we're having fun still. So that's, that's a good sign. That's great. Beautiful. All right. Well, I'll plug all this at the beach. People have already heard about this retroactively. <laughs> I haven't recorded it, but they will have heard about it. So well, thank you everyone for already knowing all this stuff. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, awesome, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, Joe. Good talking to you. You too. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.